Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And we have a very, very special episode, so we're going to get right to it and f- make a quick point of that we are a proud family member of Osiris. The Osiris Podcast Network. Please check out Dark Blue. We also want to give a quick thanks to Pole Clark, you know, the, the masters of finance for the entertainment industry and beyond. Robert Pillay, good friend and supporter of this podcast, our longest running sponsor. If you are in the entertainment industry and you're looking for financial insight, please look into Pillay Clark. P-O-L-A-Y-C-L-A-R-K dot com. But we are honored and privileged to have with us on the phone uh, the person behind Nucci Space, the author of A Beautiful Hair, the wonderful and amazing Linda Phillips. Hmm. Hello. Wow, that's, that's quite an introduction. How are I'll you doing? I'll try to live up to that. I'm doing great. Great. And it's good to hear from Atlanta, actually. Well, you, you know, I, I, I know that you lived right near where we are, quite frankly. We're oh, in the, really? Yeah, oh, we're in the Druid Hills where, area. Where are you? We're in Druid Hills. Oh, yeah. That was home. We were about a mile from Emory. Yeah, Emory. That's yeah, us. That's, my running, that's my running spot now. Ah, uh, that used to be ours, too. And, uh, and my they, kids were raised at the track. Okay. I mean, yeah, across <laughs> from that now is this... Uh, um, Mason Mill Park that they've really built out. It's gorgeous. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, we used to walk there. So listen, your book is like a lot of my favorite music. It's very heartfelt. Um, it's very insightful. It gets dark at points, but it never loses hope. Um, and that's important. Yes. And I think... Yeah. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, I never want someone to pick it up and see the title and you know ha- think it's a downer. Because it's it's sad, but in the end, I think it's has it's hopeful. I mean, we we have to tell our listeners you did lose your, your son chose to take his life uh, while he was in college at UGA, and you tell the whole story about it. And I think one of the first important things is that it's a shining example of how depression is a disease. I, I one of one of the toughest things for me, and I'm sure it drives you crazy, is the people who just have a pull yourself up by the bootstraps attitude about this sort of thing. I mean, absolutely. Nucci had he made friends wherever he went. He had everything going for him. He had interests and hobbies, and um, it just one day it was like he he flipped a switch, or someone flipped a switch, and suddenly your son was slipping away. Is that correct? That that's it. And I think um, 
you know, looking back, the thing about depression and and such uh, disorder, brain disorders, and I I really prefer to say brain disorder as opposed to mental um, illness because just the word mental alone is stigmatizing. Oh, that's so true, yeah. I think if we focus on a brain disorder and the actual organ in the body that is affected. Uh, maybe people will understand a little bit more and want to know more. Um, but yeah, it, that's one of the reasons we wanted to put Nucci's face on this whole thing was, you know, he was, he was a great kid. He was smart. He was talented, um, did well in school, made friends. Everybody loved him. Um, and then just, uh, I guess about when he was about 15 years old, he started, um, showing signs of depression and, and he told me later, um, that, you know, he'd been feeling bad for a long time and had no, no idea why. Um, so it's just some people are born with this propensity, maybe a gene, maybe a combination of, of genes, and then, Obviously, we're affected by our, our environment, and sometimes these things that we're a propensity, we're born with a propensity for, they, they show um, their evil faces, as I like to call it. Right, and, and the thing that you, you're, you're saying here is it's like, you know, you can look at your son at the time and say, what do you got to be depressed about? Look at the house we live in, look at the neighbor, look at the life you have, you know, look around you and you yeah. can see you're good. What's to be depressed about? But that's not what really depression is. It's a disease and, like, you know, cancer. Like or, any other disease, right. yeah. And, and the thing about um, people who are depressed, um, clinically depressed, they're really good actors and they can cover it up. But, you know, you can only do that for so long because it takes so much energy to cover up how you're you're really feeling. And actually, sometimes it's really not feeling. So it's kind of that's it, I think that's a chilling thing when you think about someone who is very depressed is they they their feelings become numb mm. and um, it's it's um, it's not for the faint of heart to have this illness. And also, it's very, very hard to get the courage to reach out. And one of the key things with, that you learned from this book and one of the key motivators, I think, behind you starting Nucci Space is that there were two times that Nucci reached out to adults, both when he was at the universities. First at University of Santa Cruz or University of California, mm-hmm. Santa Cruz, and he was treated like a criminal, essentially. Exactly. And then at yeah. University of Georgia, and he was told, oh, it'll be about six weeks for an appointment, Right. Right. And by that time, it was too late for Nucci. And, and, and the thing is, at that time, he knew that he could have called his uh, psychiatrist in Atlanta. He knew that. But, it, but he wanted he was trying to um, take care of this problem himself and not to burden his parents. He, and, and it's exactly what we, we would wish for and would hope that when I have a problem, I'll take care of it at that age. You know, you're ready to separate from your parents. Mm -hmm. So even doing everything that he had been taught to do, um, he was he ran into a brick wall. And I think that um, that time at at UGA, when um, he sought treatment and couldn't get it for a month, it was um, I think he was just totally overwhelmed and overburdened and decided that there was only one thing that could be done to stop this pain, and that was to end his life. 
So with Nucci's space, we have a situation where people can call. If they reach out, they're going to get help. They're not going to be judged. They're not going to be treated as – they're going to be treated by people who are understanding and who've worked with these sort of situations before. Yes, absolutely. That And the the basis for when I first came up with the idea, my thought was – First, if we want to um, attract and appeal to the music community, we kind of need to address them in their on their territory, something um, in in their own world. And the thought was, it's kind of like a uh, you know the bartender. Everybody tells their their troubles to the bartender, right, yeah. and that was kind of the thought of um, Nucci Space that there will be people there where you will be comfortable and it's a place that's made and designed just for you and the people there will listen there will be no criticism no judgment and you'll be able to get the help without going through um, a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of just all the stuff that we go through sometimes when we're and another thing to remember too is when you're depressed many times you're almost paralyzed it's a, it's hard to put one foot in front of the other so that um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, and I think this has happened thus far, is we have people who come in, maybe who have had problems but aren't depressed at the time, and they get to know Nuji Space and the people there, and then when they do have a problem, they know what to do. They can approach someone at the space, and they will get help. And, and one thing we mentioned in the interview is it's important to reach out when you're feeling well. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we say the healthiest people are the ones who seek out therapy. And I, I really think that's true. Um, it, but it's, it's so hard. And especially the age group that, um, that we attract at Nuji Space. But I have to say now we, we have, you know, we have a, a camp for young people. So the age limit is even lower. Right. And we have a lot of older people who come in now too. And the time I thought about it, my thought was Nucci's age, 22, maybe late teens. But um, over the years, we have a really broad category of people from anywhere from, you know, 16, 12 up to, uh, we have somebody there in their 60s. So the more I think people learn about us, and realize that um, there is no judgment, there is no criticism, and there's there's no expectation of this person that um, they they feel comfortable at the space, and that's the goal. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, you guys are breeding ground for the next generation of rock stars. I mean, it is Athens, Georgia, for 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 you know for that point. Yeah. And, and and this, can you talk a little bit more about the the programs you have for the youth? Because it seems that these programs are intentional for those points that you just made. One being that they're, they're in a safe space and in, in a comfortable environment where they're connecting and later down the road, it's not stigmatized to ask for help because right. it's comfortable. Right. Uh, but what programs do you have um, that, that are going on yeah. right now? I, I think um, when in early days, like a year or two after we were open, we would get calls from parents who were reluctant to have their children come there because they didn't know anything about it. They thought it was run by a lot of young musicians and they didn't know whether or not they could trust the place. So I was there then and I was able to talk mother to mother or mother to parent, whatever, and assure them that this, I wish that my kids had had such a place to go to. And so it started out from the very beginning that, that um, I came up with the idea. I thought about a camp. 
um, for for young musicians because um, I, I it has impressed me so much the um, the people that have worked at Nucci Space and volunteered that there's such really a great group of very talented um, caring individuals. So what happened was um, we started uh, this. Gosh, I guess we've had this going. Um, Bob probably could answer this better than I can, but um, Bob Sleppy. Oh, it's been for maybe ten years that that we started the camp, and what for me the the um, it's always important for me for people to know that we're there because Nucci's not there because he had a terrible illness and and killed himself. So I I always emphasize the kind of medical aspect of Nucci space. Uh, but at the same time, um, I can music is such a great instrument to get to know people and to um, and to welcome them. So we wanted to get kids as, as you know. I think if we can find get people to us before they're in crisis mode, that's just so much better. And so we started out with this young group of kids and. The program is run by what well, Dan Nettles is runs the program, and he is accompanied by quite a few really good Athens musicians. And um, he they teach they do the program, and the thing that is so helpful is they actually teach life skills. So we know that um, a band really is like a family. Oh, yeah. There are squabbles, there are problems. Um, among the different members. And one of the things that um, is done at Camp Amped is to teach kids how to deal with these problems and how to communicate and also how to express their feelings. And at the same time, some really good music stuff is going on. And that program has been very successful. We have a waiting list of kids to get in. And um, it's been, I think it's really one of the um, the highlights of Nucci Space. Bob Sleppy has worked really hard on this program. And for our and listeners, that, whole, for our listeners that want to know where they can find that, where would that be? Um, if you go to our website, Nucci.org, um, there's a section on Camp Amp, and it tells you how to apply um, the whole thing. And and you know somebody can call Nucci Space, but our website is a very good source of information. And let's point out that you don't have to be a musician. Oh, yeah. Well, that's funny that you say that. You don't have to be a musician. And I had someone ask me one day, well, do I need to be depressed to come to Nucci Space? (laughs) And um, I was glad to say no. And we love it when you're not depressed. Um, And and so it's kind of funny. You don't what I started out with musicians as the the prime group because Nucci was a musician. I, my older son is a musician. So that was in my head and that was, but as the years went on, I mean, we have helped so many non-musicians, artists in general, and um, just people in the community. And, and if someone comes into us and if there's something that we cannot help them with, we never let them leave the space without giving them other avenues to approach. Um, so you don't need to be depressed and you don't need to be a musician to come to Nucci Space. I'd be curious to see some of the, um, some currently see some of the folks that were younger that grew up in the practice spaces of Nucci Space with their bands and how, as they got, as they got older and got on the road, how 
maybe life's a little different for them, how they might maybe have skills to be able to control their, you know, urges and, and to be more professional on the road because they're, they're practice based. They're not, you know, they're not sitting there drinking and smoking and partying and practicing. Their practice is probably a little bit more on focus. Exactly. Um, and actually, if you go to our space, um, I mean, our website, there is uh, it's a series we do, I Am Nucci, and it's um, testimonials from kids who have been through the program and, um, you know, tell their experiences. And, and you know, we, we do get callbacks um, over the years from um, kids who have gone through our space and now adults have, and one in particular I remember, and there are quite a few, uh, was a young man who um, was suicidal. He was a, a senior at UGA. He was suicidal, and we got called by friends of his because they were very worried about him, and so they called the new, uh, called us. And what we did was, um, that was late at night they called. We made sure that um, the person they were calling about was safe. They stayed with him, and he was in my office the next day at 10 o'clock, and he was seen by a psychiatrist within a couple of hours um, and so a couple of oh, four or five years later, we get a call from him. He has graduated from law school in New York and is practicing um, law in California. So we get that kind of feedback, which is not only, um, you know, gratifying to us, but um, it, it's kind of documents that our program works. And now I'd also like to point out that you are your location in Athens is on hollowed grounds because the steeple that's next to you was from St. Mary's church, which yeah. REM fans may know, right? Do you, you want to tell them the significance? Exactly. Of- well, the, the, the funny thing is when, um, I, I didn't know anybody in Athens when Nucci was a student there. I, I know, no, I knew no one. And, um, the well, one person that I knew was a really good friend of Nucci's and they had done music was David Barbie. And, um, when I called, I, I got the idea. It was like, it was while listening to a Leonard Cohen song, I must say. Um, I called David and said, you know, what do we do to, um, what do we need to have for, to open a, a practice space for musicians? And he told me, you know, electricity, a bathroom would be nice. I thought that was pretty easy to do. So I went to Athens, met with David, and he gave me, this was one of the places, the location that he knew was for sale. So um, I, he had taken me to um, several different practice spaces in Athens, and I was appalled because some of them was literally a light bulb hanging from the ceiling, concrete block walls, no air, no heat, no bathroom. Um, and I thought this should be really easy to outdo. Um, <laughs> so one of the, the places that David had told me about that was for sale was this um, old building on the corner of Oconee. It was on Oconee Street. And um, close to the campus, which I knew I wanted to be, and close to town, so it's kind of in the middle. And um, so a friend and I went and we looked at this building, and at the time I knew nothing about the steeple at all. Um, I knew nothing about the building. It had been not been occupied for years and for something about it. We just like, of course we didn't consider things like really there's no parking here. Those kinds of things. I mean, um, that didn't even enter my mind, but we, we bought this building and then we found out about the history of the steeple. And, um, I'm really glad to report that the steeple now has been handed over to Nucci space 
and we are in the process of um, actually the first thing we did was just to stabilize the steeple because it was literally parts of it were falling off. So we stabilized it and we think it's just such a great connection with the music community, not only in Athens, but a lot of people all over the country know about REM, obviously. And um, that's our little connection with REM, which is, is quite nice when I found out about it. So it was kind of like maybe this place was just supposed to be. Um, parking, we'll deal with those problems as we face them. Yes, I, uh, they rehearsed there, and I think they even recorded there one at one point. Uh, REM uh, yeah, so now it's exactly. great. Now that Christy Green walked us around when we were there uh, and showed us all the work that's going on and all, you know, all the, all the donations, folks, are, are going to good use because they're building amazing, uh, improved rehearsal areas. And it's just it's all getting dolled up. It's going to be a really, really nice place for people to go an, an oasis from uh, from the world, I, I guess you could say. And, th- I, and I, go ahead. Sorry. I know that that's music to my ears. That sounds really good. And on that note of Christy Green, I want to thank her uh, for helping yes. organize and, and put this together, uh, talking with you Chris- as well as uh, getting over to Nucci's and everything. Yes. Uh, Christy is one of the most hardworking people I know, and she is just, we, we cherish her at Nucci's space. Now we're going to throw to an interview. We're, we're with um, Anders Osborne and uh, Andy Frasco, who are two musicians, but we also had Leslie and uh, and and Sleppy from your organization. And with Leslie, uh, uh, if you go to our uh, Facebook or any of our social media, there's a GoFundMe. Uh, we'd love to help support her uh, on on being able to go visit her grandmother. Yes, so, could you tell us uh, about uh, Leslie? And, 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 and could you tell about them a little bit? Leslie, Leslie's great. Um, she she came first as a volunteer, and um, it, and that's the way most of the people who work in this new space usually start out as volunteers. But Leslie, um, just she, it was one of these things where she ended up at the right place for her, and it was nothing but good for us that she happened to uh, She is British and had moved um, to Athens because she had married um, her husband, Maurice, who was from this part of the country. Um, and um, she, it, it was kind of like, as she's told me, it was a place she was looking for and didn't know it. Found, ended up there kind of by accident, and she hasn't left. We've, we hold on to her. We don't let her leave. And when I, she is now doing, she is the patient advocate at New G Space, and that was the job that I did um, until I stepped back. And um, she, what is so great, great about Leslie is she is a therapist, but she's a therapist who didn't really want to do formal therapy. And I felt very strongly that I didn't want any therapist on site because I wanted to, um, I didn't want that clinical atmosphere at NutriSpace. And so um, Leslie was perfect because she has the knowledge and um, she relates to people better than so many people that I know and have met. She she just has that um, caring, totally non-judgmental um, attitude that is, it's kind of like, this is what I envisioned for Nucci space. So we, we hang on to Leslie. She works very hard and it's, it's a tough position to hold because you, you take these stories that you hear during the day, you take them home with you. You have to, it's just, it becomes part of you and it, it can be 
um, a bit wearing, but, um, you know, the, the, this is the one thing, the, the strength at Nucci space that we must keep. And Leslie to me is, uh, the personification of what I saw could happen at Nucci space. And I'll say real quick that also Bob Sleppy, we hear his story in this interview, but I'll, I, I want to add just one quick thing. He was, he, he was a drummer in a band in Athens. Like so many people who work at Nucci's are musicians themselves, are familiar with the music scene, so it's another reason why it's comfortable for musicians to reach out. Lynn, I, I, I thank you so much. You are welcome on our program anytime you want. Please remember that and, and know that that's very true. If you ever need, uh, if you need us for anything, just, just call or reach out. You've done Thank an amazing. Thank you so much. You've Seth. done such an amazing thing here. You've turned what was probably an, uh, just clearly an awful tragedy into something that can prevent the same for others. That's a very, very giving thing. You know, you've given back the goodness quotient, as you say in the book. <laughs> oh, you did read my book. <laughs> And thank you for what you do. It's very, very important. Whenever my thoughts turn to you, whatever you want me to do, I will be there. Whether I crawled up the hill, trying to know I've been through the mill. Just as long as I feel the bell, I will be there. What up? Eddie! How we doing? Oh, my new favorite spirit animal, Andy. What's going on, brother? (laughs) Two Jews talking about mental health. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) On Rosh Hashanah, nonetheless. Let's not forget. On on Rosh Hashanah, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Wait a (laughs) Yeah, you're right. We're way, to, way to fight astigmatism, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, I just want to make sure you can hear us okay. Let's do a quick round here. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. This is Bob Sleppy. Uh, I'm the executive director at Nucci Space. Oh, great. What's up, dude? Hey, how you do? Good. What's your name, boss? Bob. Bob. Yep. Nice to meet you, Bob. I'm Anders. Nice to meet you, Anders. Anders? Yeah. What's up, dude? It's Frasco. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You're my new oh, my God. Dude. Oh, man. I'm talking to Anders Osborne right now. Via puck. Oh, my God, dude. It's great. What's up, dude? Oh, everything's great. I'm just chilling out, man. I'm excited to talk with you, and, and Seth is going to be killer. Oh, man. Sorry. So we got Nucci Space. Are you guys out of Athens? Yeah, we are. And this is? Leslie. Leslie Cox. Leslie. Leslie, tell them, tell, tell, uh, tell them what you do here. I'm the counselor and advocate here in Nucci's, so I'm like the person that people come to when they want to reach out. She's often the first point of contact for the people who need it the most. Yes. That's one, I was literally just talking about you guys with Dave. Uh, Dave Schools is producing my record right now. We're in Richmond. He was talking about the space in Athens and awesome. how you guys have been around. Yeah. Sweet. Please, Sweet. please tell awesome. Dave we say hello. I definitely will. I definitely will. And I'm Rob Turner, co-host of Inside Out WTNS. The one that needs the most help here, folks. <laughs> All right, Rob. Hey, I think, Rob. I think Andy and I are neck and neck on that one. <laughs> what, medica- what medication do you want, Rob? <laughs> uh, vitamin S. I like the weed, vitamin and I, S. I like the weed and the booze, but I do a lot less of them than I used to. So maybe, mm. maybe I've matured, but it could, you never know. It could be a problem at some point. 
Yeah, stay away from maturity. It's not good for you. <laughs> so coffee's my worst thing. Oh man! So well, I know. Great. And, Glad we're talking. Yeah, Andy, you said you're strapped for time, so let's just jump right into it. The the idea here sprung. We've always wanted to support Nucci's in any way we can, and mental health is on the top of our mind. Andy, your podcast talks about it. Almost every musician, and Anders, you've gone yeah. through so much and you've known so many people have gone through so much so i thought what better way to really bring this conversation to the forefront which is the first thing that needs to happen to actually make a difference and come to athens sit down with the folks at nucci's and bring you all on board yeah 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 i love it i I think it needs to be talked about you know we're afraid to uh talk about uh the bad things that happen in our life as well you know it's great that we're talking about this This is great i'm in well, I think yep. one one thing that should be made clear to musicians or anyone that's in strife is that help is out there. You just need to reach out. There's there's nothing to be embarrassed about, and there's nothing to be ashamed of, and there's nothing that's insurmountable. Absolutely. Totally. What do you think? What do you think the root is? Do you think it's social media? We're always posting stuff that of everyone making each other happy. That we can't. We're afraid to be vulnerable, especially as musicians, where like it's. They, people think of our lives as this crazy, happy, living the dream, and we're just suppressing how we really feel. I think what, one of the things is it, the stigma has been built year on year on year on year. Throughout your whole life, it's been building up and building up, and we've got to break that down. And the only way we can do that is by talking about it. And we've got to make ourselves vulnerable. And if we make ourselves vulnerable when we're able, then other people that are vulnerable and actually need help can feel a little bit better about asking for it. Well, on that, on that note, you, we, we were talking earlier, and you said that that's particularly with men, that men, Very much so. uh, we hold our feelings in. So here's, you know, I have, a, I have a six-year-old son, and I'm wondering, how do I break that stigma with my son? Because that's where it's got to start, right? Totally. You've got, to, you've got to be open. You've got to be transparent. And do it with care, obviously. But, you know, if your kid wants to cry, you let him cry, and you let him feel his feelings. I'll give him something to cry about. <laughs> <laughs> He'll give you've him, got to let him okay. recognize his feelings. It'll be know? in the form of a pun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was that, Andy? Oh, I, I, I don't have kids, but I, I could tell with how I react towards things. Like I think is like my girlfriend is my my bandmates right now, and uh, and we live on the road. We're doing 250 shows a year for the last 13 years, and you know it's like. It, it was, you know, it's like when we suppress these feelings and we just let them fester and fester and we end up blowing up or, you know, not really showing how we really feel about the situation. I, th- I, I agree. I think we need to start being an open communication with whatever you're feeling, you know, if it's good or bad. Totally. If you hold it in, as you say, you know, they fester until they explode. And that in itself is a form of self-harm. You know, if, if you can't let that out, it's going to hurt you. There's no doubt about that. I think too. This is Anders. I think too. The thing that can be troublesome is most people in trouble, uh, you know, bipolar or severe anxiety or light anxiety, depression. We can't reach out. My experience going through those things is that I don't want to talk about it. So it's not easy to just say, "Oh, just reach out. There's help to be had." We can't, we don't know how to do it. So I think it's also important to teach each other what the signs are 
and then you step in because I got help. People stepped in and helped me with my addiction. They helped me with my uh, bipolar stuff and explained, hey, I think you're going through this. You, you need to get off your antidepressant meds because you're not in depression. You're something else. That's why you have panic attacks. So people step in because they had the knowledge. You don't awesome. have the knowledge. You just wait for people to go, hey, just reach out. I'm like, I don't know how to reach out. I mean, they had to pick me up from my 25-year addiction and drag me to a rehab. Uh, I was kicking and screaming, but they just knew the people involved in my life. But I think if we can help each other to see the signs, when people have suicide tendencies, I've lived you know, with someone that has had those tendencies, and you have to go in. They're not going to tell you. They're not going to tell you. They're going to actually be super happy three, four weeks before they commit suicide. They're going to seem like they're fine because they made up their mind. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to learn what the signs are and then step in for them because they don't know how to do it. And Does Leslie, that make sense? Leslie was just telling me of some of those signs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. When you when you see this, when you see the mood swings, or when you see the the angry outbursts, or when you see yeah. the isolation, or when you see someone that's starting to use substances that perhaps they didn't use before, you know, there's something. Yeah. Generally speaking, there's something going on there that needs to be looked at. And the earlier yeah. you step in, the earlier things can get resolved, and the easier it is on that person. The less likely it is that they're, that they're going to go down that road. You know? Yeah. Wonderful. How do you, um, Anders, what about, um, will you talk to me about, you know, why people get addicted or why people, <laughs> why, you know, I haven't, I haven't really been addicted. I, I know your story and, you know, I, that coming down record is one of my favorite records of all time. That yeah, really, it's unbelievable. And it really hits all these points. I mean, were you fighting that during, yeah. after that record? Like, can we talk about that? I, yeah, I was in my active addiction when we, when I wrote and recorded it. And um, um, I, what was your question exactly? Like, so were you fighting addiction uh, during? Like, when did you find out that you needed to find help, or like, what made yeah. you get addicted? Like, were you already suppressing feelings, or like, what? What I was did, your getaway for drugs? Yeah. Okay. So. The discovery that I was, you know, dealing with uh, childhood trauma or uh, and it doesn't have to be severe trauma. I've learned Um, it it just basically stuff that happens early on that makes really deep impressions on you, um, mostly negative, of course. That shapes how you uh, handle your reality for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. You know, your base brain is takes up a, a, a huge percentage of your behavior and that is being shaped your first six years uh, uh, according to some of the things I've read so what I did without knowing it was I developed a codependency on people and in a severe case of people pleasing because I was afraid of abandonment so I couldn't I couldn't in any shape or form be rejected because that was life-threatening in my inner child's uh, world. So I had to develop really, really quickly because of what happened to me in my early childhood. I had to develop techniques to adapt to each group I'm with, each person I'm with, each especially grown-up. Anybody in authority, I had to figure out 
whether I should fight them or go along with them. Women had a certain role, how I, so all these things, they're exhausting to live with, but you're not quite, or I wasn't quite aware of all this. So eventually, you know, drugs and alcohol kicked in around 10 or 11, and then it was like just fleeting here and there, you know, and then at 13, it was full on. Mm-hmm. It was just like a lot of us, we just start real quickly to, to you know, intoxicate ourselves for social reasons. And then I would say 1999 was the first time that I hit the wall. So I'm in my, I guess, 30s, early, early mid-30s at that time. And I just, at that point, I had screwed up everything. I had lost five days, lost my instruments, misplayed, misplaced. I've been walking around the city with my girlfriend at the time for five days without any clothes on. And she thought it was funny as hell. And Were you I, strung out? Yeah, strung out, drunk, uh, you know, just drugs and alcohol. And and I remember thinking then, this can't be n- normal. And it was the first, like, some little voice told me, because I was always adapting. If I drank a lot, I would find people that drank as much or more. And then I would hang with them. And if that became... The opposite again, I was the one that drank the most. Then I would find a new crowd. So I would just kind of keep moving around to make sure that I fit, you know, the mold of the new group. And that way I was never in trouble. But this just reached a point where I was kind of the only one I knew that would constantly do those types of things. So I said, okay, this can't quite be what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, it took me another you know, 10 years before I, I recovery stuck with me. I was in and out and trying to clean up and stuff. But I knew in 99, to answer your question, that's when I knew I was not like everybody else. I kept medicating because I was overwhelmed by, you know, part of my bipolar diagnosis, which I had not been diagnosed until I was 44 years old. Um, wow. So Did you feel like you had bipolar? No. I just thought I was really passionate. I just thought I was really up and down. I thought I was just an artist. You know, I'm using cliches here now, throwing at you. I'm just, I thought I was a lot of these things. I was like, oh, I'm just like, oh, you're crazy, man. Yeah, you're like a freaking artist, man. Oh my God, he's like, oh, he's a musician, man. (laughs) You just kept going and you start buying into those roles which goes back to my people pleasing. I go, yeah, that's what I am. And I go, no, I'm not, I'm an introvert. I'm a lonesome, melancholy little child that, you know, I fucking lost my shoes and I don't know where I am. I'm mm-hmm. lost. Well, Anders, I, yeah. I, I want to ask you one key thing, because a lot of times people who are talented like yourself are afraid that if they get sober, they'll lose the talent. We or, heard or take it. medicine on that part to like control the bipolarness that that they'll yeah, that they'll lose their edge. They'll lose their skills. Can you please help dispel that myth? <laughs> yeah. So. I'm eating key lime pie. Is that okay? It's well, you're, a, you're uh, tell me you're in tell me you're in the key the keys though. It's amazing. <laughs> I knew we were gonna be that's, friends. That's dude. where we that's, that's where we put the meds. This <laughs> <laughs> is the best. <laughs> See, it works already. It's all about replacing the drug, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, no, so actually hard. putting the drug in the key line. Wow, that's, that's like those pouches you buy for your pet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wrap it up in a ball of dough and throw yeah, it at them. There you go. Have at it. 
smoke this pie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, what we were saying, yeah, the myth. So, I, I struggle really hard. Again, everything, you know, was so based for me, it was so based on this creation of a character. And the character was to be. I used to talk a lot more like this, too. Yeah, you know what that motherfucker used to tell me, man? Let me tell you something. That's more like, it, that's not me at all. Huh. I don't know why I talked like that. It was just silly. But your alter have, ego? Yeah, absolutely, which is the drunk guy that doesn't give. I loved alcohol. Out of all the drugs, crack and, you know, heroin and a lot of speed and stuff, I just loved drinking alcohol so much it was just yeah. i don't know what it was but that was the narcissist standards yes that was a serious look at me look at me and also at the same time when i was intoxicated it was so much easier to be the guy that i don't care i don't care about my career my ambition about having friends i don't care about anything which none of that's true i care deeply about being loved and being uh, uh, accepted and being successful and you know people respecting me that those things were crucial to me for many many years now when i'm sober they are not worth very much at all i just i just love other people for what they do i don't worry so much about what people think about me and that has to do with sobriety and i guess 7 years of a lot of medication for for my diagnosis to stabilize myself and then change the diet and exercise and sleeping habits. You know, you got to adjust a lot of things to get right. Well, absolutely. <laughs> well, coming off of a month of, so I took the month of September. I made it sober September and I didn't drink or do yeah. any partying or whatnot. And for most the, of the month. Well, the whole month, except for like Rosh Hashanah. What are you? Come on, most yeah. of the month. So uh, <laughs> it was twenty-eight days. That's a long time, Rob. What are you, uh, not, it is. It's anyway. not the month, though. That's I'm right. proud of you. Hey, it's a month of it's February's twenty-eight Four weeks. days. Right? Four weeks, right in a row. Uh, my my point though is dreams. I didn't realize that when I was drinking, even if it was a couple glasses of wine every night, that yeah. I was missing dreaming. I wasn't sleeping really. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, yeah. it's like. Holy shit! Like no, like the, these dreams came back, and I didn't realize it was missing. Yeah, that's. I, I remember that too. It's fascinating, fascinating. So I to dispel the myth, I, I got to say that my creativity jumped like. I, with, I mean, it's so much better. I write almost a song every day. I wow. write something almost every day. I, 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 I hear when something is not truly that interesting much sharper now than i did when i was under the influence because then you're all in your head so you can't really tell if it's actually translating into other people's uh emotions is it making any impact or am i just doing this to myself you know so i i think it's been working for me much much better it took it took six months in sobriety and with the you know first they had me on lithium and seroquel and Tegretol and a bunch of heavy stuff that just I was drooling a lot. It wasn't very cool. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, it wasn't good. But were you a zombie through all that? Yeah, I'd say a little bit. A little bit. It was I not think that's great. A concern. That's what that, people are afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. It was too, it was too much. <laughs> well his girlfriend had to build an outdoor shower for him because he was living on the porch. <laughs> <laughs> but Anders, there is proof that your creativity is back and I can I can offer it in four words. 
Buddha and the Blues. <laughs> Available now. Oh, sweet. It's his Damn. new CD, folks. Check it out. Hey, how about you, Andy? Um, now you're very open on your podcast. It's one of the. It's called Andy Frasco's World Saving Podcast. You're very yeah. open about your life and about your partying. Um, where do you stand on the uh, someday going to look for help and live the life the way you are kind of uh, precipice? Well, I, I have kind of the same story. I wasn't on like crack or heroin like our boy, but I was addicted. I, I was addicted to pussy, man. To be honest, oh. I, 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 <laughs> you know, to, I was having I was having one night stand. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry, Bob Sleppy. <laughs> Bob Sleppy's chiming in there. That's great. No, but I was a sex addict, man. I was having one night stands every night because I wanted to be loved. You know, I yeah. I had that same feeling. That's why I stayed on the road for 14 years. I never bought a house. I lived yeah. in my van. I was on tour for ten and a half months, just because I thought I if I did if I got off the road, my anxiousness will make me feel weird feelings, and also I'm afraid that I will won't be relevant anymore in my weird in my weird head. You know, it's like being yeah. loved. It's the same yeah. childhood abandonment. You know, I grew up. I I had my sisters were older than me. I never had. I mean, there. I grew up in a nice area of Los Angeles, and you know, not nothing, no stigma for mental health. My sisters were doctors, so I was just basically alone. So I mean, it was kind of a cry, cry for help, you know. So I looked at my, you know, I was like, it was one time I was on a bender in Germany and having an orgy with a couple German girls that I didn't even wasn't even attracted to, and I was on cocaine, and I looked myself in the mirror. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm like, I'm not even attracted to these people. I'm just filling a need because I don't want to look deeper into myself to find what's really going on. And it's yeah. maybe a call for help. I don't, you know, it's 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 tough. And you know, it's like, and when you're with, when you surround yourself with people, you know, kiss your ass every day. You know, when it's it's hard to to be that vulnerable person and yeah. say and say no. Yeah, and and it's now tough. Andy, now Andy, that your um, that with your podcast, a lot of the a lot of the, you know, you've had this amazing conversation with Gary the other day, uh, who's got a, a HBO I think documentary coming out on mental health and and I find that yeah. more and more the musicians you're talking to, you're you're scratching the Green Sky one's another great example. You, you know, the interview went there. I don't, it didn't, it wasn't driven there. It just it just naturally went there, and it was great great topics that came up out of that. Uh, I'm curious though, is that are you, wh what's your approach now when to kind of tying it all together? We talked about how you gotta see the signs in other musicians and offer a hand. Are you finding yourself doing that now? That when you're talking to a musician, you might see that they're troubled. Yeah, you know, it's like we I, we all have good intuition. We're artists, you know. We we feel we could feel that. And when someone's having a shitty day and they're not opening up about it, I you know, it's I feel like it's my duty to at least try to lend out a hand you know it's like that's the reason why i started this podcast to show people that we're not alone you know like i'm a musician maybe they'll talk to me and maybe they don't want to talk to a journalist maybe they want to talk to someone who's like-minded you know and that's and what what was crazy is that when when neil passed and yeah. i was at lock-in the day before and i saw him and he kind of looked kind of like 
like in a like you said they're like as you said this like they already picked the path that it's going to happen then you hear about the 24 page letter like he knew yeah it's 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 troubling and like that means like we're not expressing ourselves so like i wanted to have a platform for artists to not just talk about their records and talk about yeah. the solo they put on fucking track seven or whatever you know? <laughs> i want to I I talk about some real stuff and yeah you know we're artists let's let's at least start the communication to show other artists that you know we're not alone we want to be yeah. like you know, that's why your story and it's so it, it's just so impressive like i i don't even know what it'd be like to be addicted to heroin or cracker you know it's crazy and for you to fight that and overcome it and now i see you now and you know you've toured with a lot of my friends like sister sparrow and all that crew and see how like the backstage works at your shows now and you're you're, you're really aware of it and it's just honorable man so you're you're an inspiration now, Andy, oh, when, you too. when you were talking to Mahali of Twiddle, he talked about his unorthodox road to recovery where he just kind of flipped a switch and decided to get sober and go disappear in the woods. Now, when you're looking mm-hmm. him in the eye, do you get the sense he's really recovered or do you get the sense that maybe he would he could use some professional help as well? You know, I think everyone needs professional help. I don't think just Mahali. I think everyone. I don't I, I think therapists should be like a, a doctor. You know, like it should be like your 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 yearly check in with your with your doctor. You know, your mind is just as important as your liver and your kidneys. You know, and you gotta I, exercise I, it just like you would exercise your body. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I mean, it's like anything. I think if it's a muscle, we gotta we gotta keep on. You know, it's like it's like going to work out once a year and telling yourself you're you're fit. You know, and it's not. You're not. <laughs> well, you're, you are. You know, it's like it's like. It's, uh, well, I it's, feel it's, great. I've been on a diet. How long have you been eating like that? Uh, a day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we are at like, we are at Nucci Space in Athens, which is an organization directed specifically at this. And I wanted Bob Sleppy, the director of it, to talk for a minute about the the organization and about some of the things that have been said and about some of the initiatives they have going on. Oh, thanks. Uh, great. Actually, just to hop on what we were just talking about just for a second. Part of Nucci's story is that uh, um, you know, he lived with his uh, uh, major depression for five years. He was diagnosed when he was a junior in high school. You mean Nucci, the man? The yeah, Nucci, who, who is, uh, this place is named after. Nucci Phillips, right? Yep. And uh, he was diagnosed in, uh, uh, like, like I said, junior in high school. Uh, he was a senior here at UGA, and... Uh, he knew when he wasn't feeling well. He had lived with this disease for five years, and uh, beginning of November of 96, he reached out and asked for help. And uh, he was able to get an appointment for mid-December. Um, and uh, I always bring that up, because if any of us were to walk into an emergency room and say, you know, I'm having chest pains, and they said, well, you know, why don't you come back in about six weeks, we'll take a look at you. <laughs> right. You know, Ugh. it just doesn't work that way. No. And, and so I think we need to be aware that, you know, treating uh, mental illness, you know, needs to take the same priority as, you know, other parts of our body, just like, you know, y'all just said, you know, like your liver and kidneys. Yeah. And um, and if you don't take care of your, your, your brain, you're not going to have good outcomes. So um, it's part of Nushi's story that I think is important to talk about. Uh, Nucci took his, uh, he had his appointment in uh, December of 96. He took his life on Thanksgiving Day of 1996. 
And um, in the wake of his death, uh, his mom, Linda, uh, came up with, you know, she wanted to help, you know, his fellow musicians and friends. And uh, she wanted to focus on his greatest passion, which was music, and his greatest need, which was getting access to care in a timely manner. Um, Athens, Georgia is a really unique place because there's not a whole lot of industry here, um, but there's a lot of music. Um, so it's a, a really fantastic place to create. Um, I think it's a wonderful muse, but if you're trying to make a living at it, you're gonna have a hard time. Uh, actually, the people that make a living at, at music uh, in Athens, you don't see much of them because they're traveling. They're in a van. Um, and hmm? Selling t-shirts. Um, and so uh, what we wanted to do was, you know, create a, a place for, you know, musicians in town where if they're seeking professional counseling or therapy, they come to us. We've contracted with different therapists and psychiatrists, helped uh, reduce their rate, and they've been incredibly helpful in doing that. Uh, we get them to the right help um, and pay those bills for them. We've, uh, wow. we, on average, help about 260 musicians every year, uh, subsidize around 2,300 appointments every year, um, and we've helped well over 2,000 musicians since we've been open. We opened in September, uh, actually September 30th of uh, uh, 2000, so we just hit our 19th year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Excellent. Yeah. Amazing. And they often work in, question. Con in conjunction with other organizations, one of which you know well, Anders, Music Cares. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Debbie Carroll at uh, Music Cares in Nashville, she's a, a UGA uh, alum, and she's been incredibly kind and helpful to us. Uh, they help bring a dental truck down to Athens. Mm -hmm. uh, they also help um, – they do a, do a really good job of utilizing their resources – um, by working with smaller nonprofits in, in specific areas. Um, they have really good funding source, but they're even better at working with small organizations that can actually, you know, reach musicians that are maybe harder to reach, you know, in places like L.A. and Nashville. I mean, like I said, there's not a huge industry presence in Athens, Georgia, so they utilize us to help make that connection. Andy had a question. Do you think... Um this is this is amazing. I just found out about you guys from Dave literally yesterday. So this is so this is so serendipitous that this is working out. Do you think um, the reason why musicians uh, don't do therapy because it, they don't have health care or 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 vice versa, it's not part of their plans? I think I think everybody has different reasons why why they don't do it. Uh, um, you know what we like to. But try do you think we could help? You think if we could figure out a way to put it in our insurance plans, you think there's a way that we could put it where we, it's just like a, like another physical? Oh, you think absolutely. that would help? Absolutely. I, I also think, and this is one of the reasons why NutriSpace exists, is that, you know, uh, folks like us sitting around this table and on this line, you know, we actually give a shit and are going to do something about it mm -hmm. um, rather than wait around for, you know, a bunch of suits to figure that shit out. You know, yeah, um, man. and don't forget, you got, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really political by any means, but I was listening the other day to uh, Bernie talk a little bit about uh, his health care. Anyway, he was talking about mental health being a part of that, that's, uh, that, which I, I, I believe in Canada, mental health is part of their whole piece, too, isn't it? Yeah, but I think they're building a wall right now, so I don't think we're going to be able to get 
and yeah. there anytime soon. <laughs> and but, there are other ways to get it than from the government. Yeah, so, so, and, and you guys might be aware of this, but over the past few weeks, uh, several um, music industry professionals uh, who are committed to changing the narrative around mental health have gotten together and launched uh, today. Uh, a mental health agency called Backline. Backline is a hub of artists, industry professionals, and their families that are quick uh, and easily to provide quick and easy access to mental health wellness resources. They're partnering with the leading supporting organizations and care providers and streamline it to, to streamline access to services, etc. Um, and this is all through the music industry. So Backline.care. And one of the things that's neat about this, I find that. So the, their idea is to be able to be a backstage resource for artists, right? And provide quick and easy access for musicians to get mental health assistance. But this is just one organization. Nucci's is another. Music Cares is another. New Orleans Musicians is another. South Florida, I mean, if we keep going on and on, there's so many. And I think that it's it's amazing that we can all pull money into our communities and, and help locally here in Athens. And also, you don't just help Athens. If you get a call from Philadelphia, you'll take it. Oh, yeah. But um, but I think there's an alignment that we need to kind of work on so that that we can if, if you got fielded a question here, someone called Nucci's and wanted help and you were not available, you should be able to give them another call oh, to absolutely. someone else. And, and what I liked is you were talking earlier about it not just being the to, one of the ways we can make this shift is not saying call the helpline, but mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. let me give you why don't you give this uh, give Sam a call. Yeah. Can you talk on that? To make give Leslie a call. Connection. Well, yeah. Leslie I'm saying when Leslie's too busy. <laughs> yeah. But can, can you talk well, yeah, to her? If you, if you can give a personal recommendation from someone that you know, that person, the person in need has got much more chance of uh, reaching out to them because they've got that connection that they didn't have before. With something like a helpline, it's much more difficult because it's anonymous. There's no link there. There's no connection. Yeah, I think that one yeah. of the things that really works with NutriSpace is that you know, we treat every single person that walks through our door as one of our friends, you know, and we also get to know the therapists and psychiatrists. So I'm not just sending patient A to psychologist B, you know, I'm like, I'm sending Tim to Bill, you know, and. And one of the uh, ways you're getting to know these individuals, because if, for those who don't know, you guys have a stage here, you've got practice rooms you've got gear you're very it's very welcoming to the athens musicians community to come in here rent gear for like tenths ten cents on the hundreds you know what i mean mm -hmm. it's, it's yeah. and they'll soon have a recording studio oh well. hang on rob yeah. let me bring you back up there go ahead oh and they'll soon have a recording studio you're, as well. you were breathing too heavy oh so yeah a recording studio and a whole chill area to uh, to yeah talk about that but well i mean <clears throat> new space is a really kind of unique place in that it kind of becomes whatever you need it to be. Um, you know, for a musician that's just moving to Athens or a band that's moving to Athens and needs the lay of the land, we sort of become the chamber of commerce for that band. Let them know kind of what clubs they need to go talk to and, you know, where, what they should be doing as far as their next steps. Um, we can sometimes be a community center. People just need to get together. Um, we can uh, be a place of, uh, you know, gathering, you know, when somebody passes, you know, just to hang out and share stories. Um, you can also just be somebody's kitchen table where you just want to bullshit around a table and, you know, talk about stupid shit. I don't know, but you know, it really becomes, uh, whatever the community needs it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of the beauty of it. You know, we're, 
you know, just until recently, we have basically a 14-foot picture of Nucci in the per, per, uh, in the performance space. We had to take it down during construction. But you know, I always say we're you know we're about as subtle as you can be with a 14-foot picture of Nucci. In, <laughs> you know, it's like. Um, but it's a, it's an environment where musicians are very comfortable and it's a safe space without having to be like it's not a stigma of oh you're going there because you need to be sober. So. Anders, I ask you this: What's it like to be sober, and how do you, uh, in, in the recording situation, and where you're with in the music industry, where other, I mean, geez, like look at you and know, living in New Orleans. Yeah, you, I was going to say another, but living in New Orleans, uh, where you're surrounded by the party, how do you, how do you operate yourself in that environment without the temptation, and and also how do you, not allow that to be a depressant to you, or maybe it is. Um. I think it goes in stages. So the, the beginning stage is to kind of create a, a safer environment, uh, which is, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to have a backstage, but a lot of my friends, and like when I used to work on Bourbon Street, you just sit in the bar in between the set breaks. And Frenchman Street's kind of the same thing. There's nowhere to sit or isolate yourself or have a, a special guy that keeps people out. But for me, uh, I developed a system of showing up real, real close to showtime and then leaving right away. And then I would take part of my pay if I could, even though in the beginning, you know, I, I had to kind of start over and I wasn't getting paid a lot. Um, but I would take part of my pay to hire someone to come. Can you wrap up my stuff if it was a home gig or something? Right. So just so you can design a, a work environment. And then I would set up, I have a foundation that's kind of, uh, you know, continue this work, which is to set up a network of people that can come out and sit with you that are sober. So that was the first stage to develop an environment that worked a little more conducive to being clean when you're totally terrified and you're afraid of relapse and you're tempted and all that and then the second phase was when you hate everybody uh and you think they're just full of shit and they're talking nonsense you know and you go through that when i went through that phase then i had to work on maybe more meditative things uh which is like making sure that i'm in a good space to do my job so i can go in there and that takes and i i've kept that habit up so i meditate hours before the show and now, so if we can speed it up to the what I do now, I focus on the gig and I think of the environment I'm going to be in and I try to meditate on it and think about my role in the group. So if there's a 200-seater, small little venue, I play by myself, then I try to figure out what my role is. Not I'm going to show up and fucking play songs and kick ass. I go, what's my role? What am I conducting up there? And then I meditate on that. And then I make sure I understand to include the people. Or if it's a larger room, then I think about that. And that's been very, very, very helpful. Because that means when I show up, that's who I am now. So I shake hands and I talk. And the alcohol and drugs, they don't bother me almost at all. They're not, I can't hardly see that it's happening because I'm focused on my job, what I'm supposed to do. So those are like things I can control, which is how I feel inside. But I think the initial thing was to set up an environment 
just physically so that it's it's really easy to come in and out do my job and leave and, and not you, be in, yeah and you also record a lot though don't you with a lot of musicians in new orleans yeah so the recording process that can be tricky if i'm producing somebody and they like to do blow or they you know they have a whole different scene they like to do late night then i have to start this process in the pre-production where i'm like prepping them diplomatically hey so can we start a little early hey you know so you kind of guide you try to get them to to go yeah bro that sounds great bro you know and you kind of get so you can compromise somewhere if it gets really really bad i will actually leave if it gets to a place where i can't do my job then i i have um asked to be excused and say hey guys if you want to take over from here and I'll come back in the morning and I'll look over everything you guys did. So, yeah, I'll mm -hmm. remove myself if it gets stressful. So you got to stay grounded and true to yourself. And, and it sounds to me like you really set boundaries and, and live by them. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, For me, it's not about, uh, you know, not drinking. To me, it's about living. Mm -hmm. I'm pro my new life. I'm pro my new attitude. I'm pro the beauty that I've discovered that I actually had and the beauty I see in others that I never could see because I was intoxicated all the time. Yeah. I think um, the, the so, key that I heard you say was like that you're in control. I mean, that seems like that's the, that's the big one. Is that Yeah. I, I think that is really helpful because that's part of why I drank is to, you know, find some kind of area where I controlled it. It's kind of like bulimia or, you know, you were talking about sex addiction, Andy. It's the same. If you can get laid all the time, I think most people would be sex addicts. And that's maybe <laughs> a dumb statement. But I'm saying... <laughs> Sounds know, like Wade Boggs. Yeah. I think I'm healed. I think I'm... Uh, but it, it's I don't the have same that problem. Thing, but, it, but it isn't the same thing, thing as yes. drinking or doing coke or, you know, it's, it's around us all the time. It's, it's the... Exactly. And I was going to say... To me, those were linked. I had periods in my uh, my addiction career where the sex part was a huge deal as well. Th these were all links. Like this happens first, then I go to this stage, and then stage three. Boom! There we are. And, and they all had to like happen, and that created a sense of control because I could go from drink to this to a line to a bag to a pussy. Bam! 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 And yeah. you kept that going, right? And if yeah. one of them broke. The whole night's destroyed. You're like, what the fuck? Whoa. And you needed the whole thing to kind of complete itself over uh. and over and over. Yeah. So uh, before I ask this question, I want to point out to our listeners that Andy Frasco has been touring for over a decade. But even so, Andy, you're around a lot of younger musicians um, and a lot of younger fans. To what extent do you think they're aware of the help that's available and how easy it is available? And how can we go about making it more common knowledge to those folks? We're, we're starting to have that conversation, but a lot of these people, a lot of these musicians just can't afford healthcare, can't afford having someone to talk to. I mean, like we live on this budget. That's crazy. That's yeah. why we have to live on the road for 200 plus shows. There's no money in royalties anymore. There's no back end to keep us at home. So we have to really stay on the road. So it's, 
how can we find help? Like maybe it's Call like us. building a network of therapists <laughs> that could talk on the phone like this, you know? There, and there, there's, maybe there's that. Yeah. Call but, Leslie. Well, <laughs> yeah. But but not only is there the the phone. Right. There's also getting the conversation so people don't have the stigma. And I think that's going to happen backstage. That's going to be people like yourselves, people like O'Teal, you know, really reaching out and making it a conversation. Because here's the thing. Think about back in the 1920s or 30s. When did when did Alcoholics Anonymous start? Whenever that started, it started because the Uh conversation, what we're doing right now happened. And alcoholism became not a stigma, but a disease. And people were able to start talking about it. Now, this is a little different, but my point is, if we if we continue this conversation and we have that backstage with the other artists and actually start sharing that and say, hey, you know, and, and here's these numbers, be it Nucci's, be it New Orleans, be it Music Care, whatever it is, and start moving that forward and making it so that it's part of our everyday conversation, it will no longer be a stigma and people will actually go and maybe pick up the phone. Yeah, I think the best example would be probably the way people talk about cancer now. You know, at some point in our past, you know, people even referred to it as the C word. They wouldn't even say the word cancer because it had such a stigma to it. It's basically, oh, you have cancer, you're going to die, you know? And so um, yeah. the, the statistics that stick out to me that since I've been in this field is that 80% of uh, people that have depression can receive some sort of uh, relief through treatment, 80%. Unfortunately, two-thirds of people that have that diagnosis don't ask for help. So that's just fucked up. And, yeah. you know, we, we really need to get to a point where people feel like, you know what, you know, something's not right with me. I need some help. And there's so many factors that come into play with that. Um, I went through a very, very uh, severe depression a few years ago, and I basically sit about six feet away from Leslie who I could just turn around and go, Leslie, I fucking need some help. But I couldn't even pivot my chair to do that because Uh I just, you know, I, well, there's lots of different reasons, but one of them was like, you know, it'll get better. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm, do you think, I I don't feel good now, but I'll feel better. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do Do you think it's because we, we feel like we're being weak for asking for help? Um, I'm sure some people feel that way. I, I really didn't feel that way. For me, I think it was always like, you know, I have a pretty stressful job, and uh, I'm always thinking that, you know, like, oh, yeah, today, I mean, today kind of sucks, or this week sucks. It'll be better next week. And then that next day or that next week just never comes. And then all of a sudden, you know, I feel miserable, and I've felt miserable for months, you know, and uh, something's... Uh, and then I get to a point where I am depressed and I begin to not feel worthy of even asking for help. Because um, you're, I mean, a sick brain will completely mm-hmm. fuck your world. Um, but it, it sounds to me that, you know, it actually shows you what I was saying earlier, that the addiction mind, the anxiety mind, the depression mind, the mental, these are all the same minds. They're being taken over. So eventually this will all be one and the same thing. It stems from the same problem, which means that the person that's in this dilemma are not quite capable of reaching out. Because I've I've gone through all these anxiety, depression, bipolar, as as I was saying, and addiction. And when when I'm in that state, I don't ask for help. I don't want help. I want to be isolated. I want you to leave me alone. 
I, I'm going to deal with it. It's going to go, like you said, it's going to pass. It sounds it's like a getting, bad marriage. <laughs> yes, it's, it's really what it is. It's literally, it's a dysfunctional relationship. It's not working. <laughs> but so I guess my point in jumping in there is you are being taken over by a different part of your personality that is the diseased and the sick and the skewed personality. That one is not going to make rational decisions. It's not going to reach out for help and go, hey. So I think we can treat what we did um, when I dealt with someone in depression that I was living with. We made a plan. So I learned from the psychiatrist that make a plan when the person is in its best shape, when it, they mm -hmm. feel really, Absolutely. really good. That's it. Come Absolutely. Up with, yeah. yeah, come up with a game plan for when you are feeling bad. And then you implement it and then you go, hey, remember we talked about it. And then what I learned was when to approach, when to step away, when to touch, when to absolutely don't touch. When, you know what I mean? All these things, when to put my foot down and when to just say, hey, I'm here, I love you, okay? If you need me, I'll be in the other room. And there are all these little things that I had to, mm. and it helped me that I had gone through such severe addiction that I understood that I can't just talk to the person. So it was very helpful, uh, what, you know, the, the help that I got and the advice I got. And it helped us. It helped us tremendously. And I think it's important to point out to people who are struggling that the people in your lives might not be, might not know what to say. They're not professionals. And they, they might. That's very important. They yeah, might serve. Very important. Yeah, they might serve to, to make you not want to reach out and get help. But if you call someone like Leslie or if you call the suicide prevention hotline, you're going to get a receptive ear and someone who's a professional and who knows, you know, what to listen for. Can you speak yeah, to that a little bit, yeah, Leslie? Well, I was just so impressed in what he said. That What he said was exactly what I say to people that sit opposite me at this table every day. People come uh, in, you know, and it was just so perfect. Yeah. <laughs> when, when, when you're well, that's when you need to reach out. Because you know yeah. you're going to go down again, and you need yeah. to be ready. If you're ready, you can stop yourself going too far down, and you can stop yeah. it going too deep. That's amazing advice. That's amazing advice. That's exactly what you need to do. Because that's how I know that firsthand. That's what I did in my addiction too. When I was feeling great, I made several calls on someone's advice, and I said, "I'm in deep trouble." Yeah. And then you know, lo and behold. Two months go by and there I am somewhere in the park screaming and they're scooping me up. Yeah. But they know then that I had already said, please scoop me up if this happens. Mm -hmm. And I think that yeah. the, these conversations like we're having with you, Anders, is, is, are the conversations that I think we need to have more of, not just talking to people about how people have fallen, but how they've been comfortable or at least push themselves to go ahead and get help and to, yeah. to and let other people hear like, wow, these it's, it's different if I'm like, oh, I, I go to therapy and I get help. Well, versus a musician that everyone awes over that goes ahead and says something like that. Yeah. Well, I hope so, because it's this is a, a brief period. We're here on this planet and we get one shot at it. This this is a special time we got. We're here because it's so amazing. It's absolutely the true word of it is fantastic. It's just it's shimmering with so much beauty and mm -hmm. and awe-inspiring moments, and it's all slipping by every time we don't do this. Every time we don't get to the core of our existence, we're we're wasting it. And I mm -hmm. think that's the shame because we're so beautiful, all of us. We're just sparkling all the time. 
Did that sound like a little hippie chick no. somewhere in California? <laughs> <laughs> I think it did. Nothing wrong with that. So, so the other thing, though, is as musicians, you go from these... Your extre- third eye is woke. <laughs> 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 so, your woke guy's winking at me. So this kind of... I, I, I lend this question to both... Honors has no eyelids right now. He's just so wide awake, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as musicians, you go through these highs of like you're, you're, everyone loves you. You're on the stage. It's all this energy. It's all this excitement. And then the next day, you know, you come home from the festival. You got bills on your table. You're all alone. You're eating alone at the Waffle House or something. <laughs> Whatever it might be. How do you do? You know, on, on one way, like we don't know what the musicians are going through. Like they got albums out and all these things. We look at it like, oh, my God, this guy is blowing up. His life is perfect. And he's home going... No one's going to know that I'm a failure. They're going to all see that I'm a failure, actually. My album's going to drop, and, they're all, uh, and all this pressure. And then you go yeah. from this, this extreme high of all this love, and ah, and then you're home, and it, what's that? That quiet's got to be the loudest silence ever. How do you deal with that? And how, what are your suggestions for musicians that are going through that struggle? You asking me or Andy or both of us? Yeah, yeah, both of y'all. <laughs> all right. You go first, Andy. <laughs> Uh, explain the question one more time, because uh, it was a little sefty, uh, a little too sefty. It was, li- it was, yeah, it was. <laughs> Hold little, on a second. Hold on. You and I get that. So, we both get that question asked us all the time, Andy. How about this? There's <laughs> a lot of highs and lows associated with being a performer. You're on stage, getting yeah. all this adulation, and then you're hanging out by the by the tour bus alone, looking at the at the side of the bus, and oh gee, what did we hit today? How do you negotiate yeah. those highs and lows so you don't have to turn to substance to, uh, you know? help your way through them i think honors hit it around the head where we're we're more than just the people we are on stage you know if we're gonna miss out on all the other beautiful things that life gives us besides just the dream we had of whatever dream it might be if it's being on be, writing that great song or having that perfect show you know or what other what our fans perceive we are i mean we got to realize that there's more than life than just our work. Yeah. And we, we've, yeah. it's important. I mean, we have to have two lives, you know, it's like, we can't just do like you, you get, I, I don't know the story of Jerry Garcia, but from what I understand from it is he stayed on the road. Because he felt like he didn't have anything else. Well, it's also they had an overhead. They had 55 yeah, employees that they were paying full health benefits. So there was an, <laughs> an implied pressure on them, which is the hippie ethos. I'm not assigning blame. That was just the, what they grew out of. It's part of the beauty of the Grateful Dead. Is also part of the curse of what ended that, that beautiful thing. But it's no different than us having a manager who we support or a booking agent or a band that maybe some of the band members, that this is their only gig. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's we're all fighting this stress of trying to make music a full time living and it's fucking hard. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> we got to realize that, you know, money isn't everything and um, and quality of life is important. And, you know, you just got to keep uh, keep having no eyelids. You know, you just got to stay awake, be present. And, you know, and mostly is just like building relationships outside of the, the substances nice. or outside of our minds. Yes. You know, right? Yes. How about you, Anders? How do you negotiate your highs and lows in your uh, sober era? <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I agree with, with Andy full heartedly. And, you know, I'm, 
at a slightly different age, and I've also come to a different place, uh, the highs of the stage are not that important anymore. And, and it's not to diminish how wonderful it is to make that connection with the audience. But at 53, I, I'm kind of like, I want a small, tight group. I want us to like stealth, just roll in, have a decent hotel room, eat a superb meal, find somewhere that's like awesome, whether it's cheap or expensive, whatever, and then focus, hug, play the show, smile a lot, really put it out and go home. So it's, it's like, uh, it's an, it's a very focused effort. It's not a lifestyle for me as much. It's more like I go in and do it. And how I compensate is by arguing with my wife when I get home a lot. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Man, I, we're going to be best friends. <laughs> you need to teach me everything. You are going to be my, you're going to be my uh, Osho, my Rasha Nish, my uh, Dalai Law. You are. I, I'm, I'm telling you, man. But it's true, right? We need a side life, right? And, and yeah. like, I've had people who recorded records with you. Like I just had, a, I just hung out with Ryan Montblou yeah, and yeah, yeah. telling his conversation with you and how you have, how you basically brought him in to your house and basically recorded the studio and just like and having this family life and how important your family is i oh, mean yeah, like yeah, the bicycle <laughs> it's 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 important man and it's yeah. so it's so it's honorable for you to take take the risk and and really you know try to find full happiness on and off the stage it's, it's awesome I, yeah and i think i appreciate you giving me the compliments but part of it also, it's a, it's a, a defense mechanism because my success has been up and down through the past mm -hmm. 30 years. So when I play and there's there was 80 people, you know, paying, you have to also you have to survive those faces, not just yeah. the 15, 1500 people and everybody loves you and tour bus rolls up and yay the yeah. crew and you look so cool. You also got to survive. You have this one little roadie guy that helps you out that's not really good at it. You just hired him two weeks ago and he messes yeah. up everything and you're playing for 110 people. And, yeah. and you know, it's a Tuesday night somewhere. And what's the name of the town again? Eh, whatever. Yeah. But here's my song well, Dothan, in Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> but in that audience, there is that person. I get these letters. They go, My husband just committed suicide three weeks ago and I went to your show. And they bring me to tears, these personal letters that I get, mm. because I have a complete life around the show. The show is not the meaning of my life anymore. It's one component in me making these connections because the big success, that's past me already. I'm past my prime, so to speak. So now I'm working on being one part of a society and I am needed in certain areas. So that's where I'm going to plug myself in, not to blow up or be big or be famous or recognized. I'm just going to recognize other people. And that's part of my job. I'm going to write their story, explain their emotions and sing about it. So that's a different job than I used to have, which was to show off and blow up. Those, mm -hmm. days, those days are gone. So I think that's why it's easier for me to have the, 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 the variation rather than the ups and the downs. To me, I've leveled it all out. But I don't recommend that when you're in your 20s. You should try no. to blow up because it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> you should yeah. go for it. Yeah, you should go for it for as long as you can. 
Yeah. This is more me resorting to like the facts. I go, okay, okay, my time kind of ebbing out. So let, let me find my position here in, in the uh, cultural society that I'm in. Yeah. Here's where I'm going to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it totally, totally makes sense. Okay. And, you know, I, and I'm on the other side of that spectrum <laughs> where I'm living, you know, still living on the road trying to blow up. So, yeah. And, yeah. and you keep for me, it, man. Keep that. Oh, I yeah. love what you do. I fucking love it. Yeah, but Andy, Thanks, I've heard man. you. I've heard you. It really means a lot. Andy, I've heard you say this a couple times before where um, where you talk about your happiness and, and having fun partying, but then when you stop for a second, you're not as happy. You're like, it's just like, oh, my God. You know, when the party stops for a second, you kind of come really down. When the endorphin's gone. Yeah. You know, it's because we live, you know, at this point in my life, we're living for that for that ovation, that, that's, that song that yeah. recording you know we're we're not living to you know i wouldn't call it maintaining like basically but i think we're we're living to try to find that next great movement that next great opus so like when you slow down and realize you know it's okay to not to have that opus for and you need to go to sleep or just binge watch <laughs> television <laughs> you know it's okay <laughs> It's okay. Don't beat yourself up because you're taking a fucking day off. You know? <laughs> well, that's the other thing too is that with 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 the partying, uh, with drugs and alcohol, what ends up happening is we don't even realize it. We think we're numbing and 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 we're enjoying, but really, it's actually they're depressants, and we're actually making ourselves more depressed. And when you clear yeah. those out for a good amount of time, you actually open yourself up to being able to be happier. And the stresses of money and all these things become less stressful. I mean, Andrews, do you find yourself it's easier to be happy? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm more tuned into what I'm feeling. What I, my habits had been to, you know, uh, if I'm happy, I drink. If I'm sad, I drink. If I go to soccer games, I'm, I drink. I go to the, you know, any event, any kind of emotional movement, I would, I would intoxicate myself. Now, when you remove that, so you can imagine, like now all of a sudden, you know, slight frustration was like rage on 13 in the, the first five years. And like, ah, everything is just so many emotions. So what I turned to was my intellect. I start to think about things and I, I confuse that with emotions. Huh. So to answer your question, now it's been almost 11 years sober. Now for the first time, the last year, I'm starting to realize, oh, I'm overthinking everything. That's not. That's another addiction now. Now I'm, I'm, basically, I'm, alligating and putting uh, emotions into my brain. So what has happened now is that the stillness of nothing that you talked about, Andy, mm-hmm. that, that's where my happiness is. When that absolute stillness, which used to be boredom, when that happens, I go, wow, I'm happy. It is not in the middle of the chaos and the ecstatic endorphins and serotonin shooting out my fucking ears. That's not the happiness yeah. that, that I appreciate as much. That's more excitement. That's fleeting happiness. Yeah, excitement, which is good. It's great. That's why, you know, I, I like to run. Oh, yeah. But to, to answer your question, yes, I, I reach states of happiness, but they're very subtle. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. I think so, right? yeah. Okay. Uh, another stigma that I think needs to be addressed, and 
as best as possible removed is, I don't know, when these suicides happen, I talk to people, otherwise very intelligent people in some cases, and they often get around to the point of someone saying, oh, come on, he had a great life. Why didn't he just pull himself up? What's the big deal? What's he so sad about? And the Bob Dylan line that I've quoted before comes to mind, don't criticize what you can't understand. I think that the education needs to go out beyond the addicts but the people in their lives to not just turn off on them which can be hard i've had addicts in my life it's often coupled with an arrogance that can be very off-putting and make you want to just say fuck it and walk away from them but you have to fight that you have to fight the the inclinations and the knee-jerk reactions uh bob can you speak to that well i mean i think uh you know it's sort of like uh you know, my grandmother died of uh, cancer. It's like looking at her going, you know, quit being a pussy, you know, and, you know, get over having cancer. I mean, it's, it's, you know, uh, clinical depression is a disease, you know, and uh, it's not something you can just kind of like shake off. You know, we have to, you know, accept the fact that it's a little bit more complicated than just rubbing some dirt on it. Um, and that's what we're, especially in the South, that we're all kind of grow up with. It's just like, you know, quit being a pussy, get it over with, you know, it's like, you know, pull yourself up, pull yourself together, you know, and uh, hopefully, you know, we're uh, building a society maybe with our younger generation of like, you know, it's okay to be, uh, have a bad day, you know? Yeah, if you're out there and you're struggling, and you have people in your life like that, realize if you reach out to Leslie at Nucci's, or if you reach out to, to get help, you're going to be reaching out to people who understand, who aren't going to be judging you. They're going to be in a position of understanding what you're going through light years more than the average person on the street. So there's nothing to be afraid about asking. Just reach out. Help will be on the way. And it doesn't matter how small or insignificant you think this thing is that's causing you pain or how huge and overwhelming it is. Pain is pain and pain can be eased with the right methods. Yeah, I can't agree more. Yeah. Well, uh, on that note, um, I just want to go ahead and make a quick mention. Nucci Space is uh, is doing a major fundraiser that's actually you guys don't even realize you're probably a part of because uh, Nucci's is doing a raffle where uh, to help raise money to support these causes and, and treatments and everything like that. They're doing in Atlanta and Athens. Uh, it's a raffle, and the winner gets a free pair of tickets Basically, gets on the house list for like venues like the Variety Playhouse, Georgia Theater, Terminal West, I Forty mean, Watt Club. It's it's like twenty plus venues, and for a year you're on the house list. You can see as many shows as you want with the guest. Wow. Raffle ticket is five but five dollars. What? Five dollars. Put me down for a hundred. <laughs> All right, <laughs> and it goes to a good cause, obviously. So, and you can find that out at Nucci's. Uh, you can go to Nucci.org or uh, NucciPass.org. NucciPass.org. Yeah. And where are you guys on social media? It's Nucci Space on Twitter? You can find us at Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, under Nucci Space. And how can they contact you if, they, if someone here wants to contact for some help? Uh, you can email me at Leslie at Nucci.org or by Space at Nucci.org. Or you can telephone me on 706-227-1515. 706-227-1515. Don't be shy, people. 
All right. Well, don't be shy. Thank you all for making the time to bring this conversation. This is just the start of a conversation here. Andy, I love what you're doing in your podcast. Keep it going. It's great that you're talking to these musicians, getting these stories out of them, and, and, and getting people to share like they are and being so open. You are the Barbara Walters of the jam band world. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> if you were a jam tree, what kind of jam tree would you be? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, dude. It'd be, uh, yeah, like... Uh, and well, every, never mind. I'm not gonna. I, I was. I was gonna say a bad joke. I'm not even gonna say. Oh, leave those. Leave those to me. You know, I got yeah. that down. Don't worry about You're that. Stepping on uh, Seth's well, turf. Thank you guys so much. And Anders, thanks for telling your story. I'd love to get you on the show, man. We should. And let's just be friends. I'm gonna try to find. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Uh, blow up into your DMs and ask for your phone number. <laughs> Let's and, do it. Let's do it. Anders, yeah, Matt, for me. Anders may I Thanks also say, so much. I did some research for this, and you talk very openly and very candidly, even about your lowest moments. And I think that shows a lot of courage, and I think it provides a lot of comfort for a lot of people who are going through this. And it's extremely important, and I'm very grateful to you. And I think a, a lot of us in the music community are quietly uh, grateful to you as well. And I, I, I applaud you for that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank All you so much. Show, I appreciate it. All right. L'chaim, happy new year. Later, guys. <laughs> all right, thanks all. Bye-bye. All right, Have a good one. Bye, guys. All right, bye. Bye.
Junkie. 